Welcome to a special edition of the No Dunks podcast. I'm Leolis. I've got Tass and Trey here with me, and of course, the man making the magic happen, JD. Today, we are joined by a very special guest. He is the Vice Chairman of Charlotte Hornets Sports and Entertainment. He's been one of Michael Jordan's closest and most trusted advisors for decades. He was a co-producer of Space Jam and is an executive producer of the ratings hit 10-part documentary, The Last Dance. He is Curtis Polk. Curtis, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me today. Uh, Well, let's start with the ratings, uh, Curtis, for the documentary. We're four episodes in, and according to ESPN, we have averaged six million viewers for each episode, and now with additional reporting available, episode one is up over nine million, and episode two is is closing in on nine million right now. Um, How do those numbers align with what you had hoped for when the series was released two weeks ago? You know, we really didn't have a lot of... uh... Uh, transparency into that obviously with everybody at home we thought that the numbers were likely to be large but just to give you perspective the two uh, largest audiences uh, that watched a first run version of a sports documentary in the history of the United States were Bono's which was a 30 for 30 that was played I think in uh, 2011 or 12 right after the, the Heisman Trophy Award was given out on a Saturday night and that, I think, had about 3.6 million viewers <laughs> for the first time. And OJ documentary that ESPN did, and it debuted on a Sunday night uh, on ABC TV, I believe uh, either, I think, right before or after an NBA Finals broadcast, it had about 3.3 million viewers. So, you know, the 6 million was about double you know, for the first run of it. Uh, My understanding is we're also uh, over 9 million now when you take into account people who watched a rerun of it last week or or had DVR'd it or or, uh, uh, did a a streaming view on uh, ESPN+. Well, uh, as I mentioned there, we are four episodes in and, uh, you know, it's been great for me and for the other guys here on the line. You know, it's been like traveling in, in a time machine in some ways, taking us back. You know, it's hard to believe it's been 22 years ago to the day. And, and But as with anything Michael Jordan related, expectations are high. People expect it to be great around the world. My dad in Australia, in fact, has been watching it and talking to me about it. But with that excitement obviously comes a lot of pressure. Uh, you know, as someone who Michael trusts explicitly, did you feel pressure to get this documentary absolutely perfect? I think that, the, the, you know, as... as working with Michael for 30 years, uh, as, as most things, uh, it's the, the key is to be authentic and genuine, uh, not to try to create something that is fabricated that people, uh, nowadays in particular could see through. So I, I think what you're seeing, obviously the, the, the backbone of the documentary is the, is the actual footage that was taken, uh, during the 97, 98 season. Uh, and it's been, uh, it's been stored away for, uh, you know, roughly 22 years. And then you can see that the current day interviews are very genuine, authentic. Uh, they are not scripted. Uh, the participants did not have the questions in advance. And I think you're getting real uh, raw uh, responses. Yeah, and I think with Michael, I think that's something we're really seeing uh, that we haven't seen a lot of because he doesn't do a lot of media. And when he does, it's often in, a, in an environment where you know he's in a suit and he's... Um, you know, talking business, but right now we're seeing him there. He's got a glass of tequila. He's got a cigar. He's swearing. He's got a t-shirt on. He looks, <laughs> I mean, but it's true. I don't really remember seeing him in an environment like that. 
Um, was that something that he had to be kind of talked into, say, listen, you need to be, you know, your real self here? Or was that him just saying, you know, I, it's time to do this doc now and this is how I want uh, the image of myself to be? No, it was just, you know, uh, the first, uh, he, he sat for three interviews uh, and the first interview, um, although he had met the director a couple times before just to, to get to know him uh, socially, um, he, Jason uh, Hare, who was our director, really didn't know what to expect in the first interview. And as I think uh, he has said in a few interviews uh, over the past couple weeks, you know, within the first half hour, 45 minutes, he realized that uh, they had developed a really good comfort level and rapport and that, uh, you know, some of the things that he that Jason was concerned about were going to be barriers uh, didn't didn't exist. So it, it, it just took off on, uh, organically. So, so going back then, you know, you mentioned here that this, this footage has obviously been in vaults for 22 years and uh, Michael apparently was the one who had total control over when it would be released. So what was it that prompted the documentary to be, to be made and to be released now? Well, let me, let me just clarify. So back in 1997, when the film crew was, uh, the idea came up through Adam Silver, who at the time was the head of NBA Entertainment, to embed a film crew in the uh, in, in the 97, 98 Bulls uh, practices and traveling and, and uh, taking additional game footage. Uh, it was agreed to by obviously the NBA, the Chicago Bulls and, and Michael Jordan and, and uh, uh, his uh, business associates. Um, it was always agreed to just orally that it would never be used unless all three parties agreed to it. So all three of those parties, the NBA, the Bulls organization and, and, and Michael Jordan agreed that it was time to, uh, to produce this documentary. Now, why it took so long? Yeah, I'm sorry, I think you asked why it took so long. You know, I think the first time we really visited uh, doing something with it was probably around 2003 after Michael uh, had gone back and played for the, uh, the Wizards for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, back then a documentary, if it was longer than you know, 80 or 90 minutes, uh, it, it would put you to sleep. Uh, we just weren't used to long form episodic documentaries. So we had, we had uh, interviewed a few production companies. Uh, they had viewed some of the footage uh, that, that we had and they uh, came up with some outlines and uh, some of them had even done some mock-ups uh, and it just, it didn't capture what, what we had. Uh, you, you couldn't capture it in an 80 to 90 minute uh, documentary, particularly if you wanted to supplement that with current day interviews. So two or three times we, we looked at it during that, that probably uh, 2003 to 2010 time period. And we always felt like, nah, you're never going to be able to, to really tell the story properly. And then about 2015, we started to see documentaries like, uh, O.J. Made in America come out, uh, Making of a Murderer. Uh, there was a couple other ones uh, that, that were on some of these streaming services. And we started to get the feeling that under that type of scenario, you could make this documentary uh, and, and give the full scope of, of what it represented. I think that's so interesting because you're right to have uh, an hour and a half, two hour version of this seems so minuscule compared to the depth of the story that we're telling. Was that something that was kind of once you figured out that this was going to be able to be 10 hours long, 
was it then decided we're going into the backstory of Scottie Pippen, we're going into the backstory of Dennis Rodman, or was it more along the lines of, wow, we've always wanted to tell this story this way, finally people are in on being able to watch 10 hours of, of the same story told in a different way? Well, and again, I don't want to give anything away, but uh, because obviously there's six episodes left. That although <laughs> although we all we all know what happened at the end of '97, '98, I think some of the things like that you're seeing, like the uh, uh, the Dennis Rodman needs a vacation uh, uh, <laughs> last week, are things that are you know surprises to people. So um, let's take a look at uh, you know one of the things that obviously. Uh, was concerning, particularly uh, when we looked at the footage that we had uh, many years ago and, and thought about putting it into a documentary, is uh, Michael's ferocity and toughness on his teammates and his, his uh, singular desire to win. Um, if you just looked at that either in a short form documentary or even just through the lens of 97, 98, you couldn't really truly tell that story. So, you know, in episode two, we went backwards. So the, the spine of the, of the documentary is through the lens of the 97, 98 season. But throughout the first four episodes, you've seen us go backwards to tell either some of the backstories about the characters or some of the backstories about the bulls and the things that led up to that tension of 97, 98. So in, in this case of Michael's uh, competitive roots, you saw us go all the way back to his childhood in Wilmington, North Carolina, and interview his two brothers in current day. And, he, and you even saw some footage we had of his father talking about the competition between Michael and his brother, Larry. And you know, I think that that was important for us to be able to portray to the audience so that they could really understand where did Michael get this ferocity and competitiveness from. Yeah, he's known certainly for uh, always finding a slight, like we saw it in the the game the game five there against the Cleveland Cavaliers, where he went up to the beat writers and basically, you know, said, "We took care of you, we took care of you, and now we're going to take care of you." Uh, <laughs> referencing Sam Smith, so he was always looking for that competitive advantage. But uh, one of the uh, relationships that we saw very early on here was the relationship there with Jerry Krause and, and, and how that was played out. And, you know, Michael said before this documentary was released that he might look like a bad guy to some people because of the way that, you know, that relationship was and how he spoke and other players spoke towards Jerry. Now, Jerry's obviously no longer with us, but um, was there an attempt made to speak to Jerry's family or someone on his behalf to um, provide his side of uh, the story? Well, I, I will say that, you know, one of our greatest disappointments is that uh, Jerry died before we started doing current day interviews for this documentary. He would be the one person that we would have probably loved to have interviewed that we didn't get to interview. Um, we did not, uh, I don't believe that we tried to speak to any of his family members, but obviously we had a lot of access to uh, Bulls executives, uh, former and current, uh, a lot of people that were around in the 80s and 90s, uh, or working for the Bulls, you know, John Paxson uh, is involved with the Bulls front office. Tony Kukoc is involved. Scottie Pippen was involved until a year ago. Obviously, the Reinsdorf family still controls the Bulls. So, uh, you know, uh, Jim Stack, uh, some of the uh, the people that worked in the uh, the PR department. So we had a lot of access, and, and you'll see a lot of those people get interviewed uh, as the documentary uh, progresses. Um, 
but you know we would have loved to have Jerry uh, tell the story from his from his point from his point of view. And, and let's not forget, I mean, Jerry uh, was the general manager, but he worked for an organization, and I'm sure that you know the decisions that that he executed were not ones that he made in a vacuum. Uh, one of the storylines that I really loved, and we saw on Sunday night, was the the Michael and Isaiah beef. I mean, that you know they were they were opponents, uh, and obviously the Bulls and the Pistons had a had a vicious rivalry. And you know, I've heard Michael say over the years that you know going through those tough times with Detroit helped him become a better athlete and a better competitor, and toughen him up for for eventually when he you know took over in the nineties. But seeing Michael's kind of dismissive approach to what Isaiah had to say about the incident in 91 when when the Pistons walked off without shaking hands. I mean, that that sort of brought you back into the moment. And again, you could feel that tension. Um, Was there any reluctance on Michael to approach that or or even from Isaiah? Because Isaiah, he says why he did it and he kind of regrets it. And Michael says, well, you know, I know he's going to kind of change the narrative a little bit now. uh, but But he doesn't respect what the Pistons did. But so when you get to that point, you know, how does how do you approach that with Michael, and then how do you approach that with Isaiah? You know, again, uh, uh, Jason, who conducted almost all of the interviews, uh, is is really good at at making uh, his uh, uh, interviewees very comfortable. And uh, you know, he asked the questions, and if people were comfortable a- answering them, uh, we captured it. Uh, if they weren't, uh, there's there's definitely things that we tried to elicit from uh, participants that, that we couldn't get the uh, uh, response that was worthy of, of really putting in the documentary. But uh, again, we, we gave everybody the, the chance to tell their side of the story. And uh, if you like that interview, which is one of my favorite in the first four, you're going to see some real nuggets uh, in the next six episodes. <laughs> yeah, that was... An incredible scene. Curtis, I mean, knowing MJ quite well, you must know basically how he feels about a lot of this kind of stuff. Has there been anything we've seen so far that surprised even you? Um, you know, one of the things that was interesting uh, from uh, the uh, the fourth episode the other night, which, you know, w- w- what's great is I started working for, for Michael and his family in 1989. Um so I was there during the 90s, uh, you know, the first championship, obviously, the season that the documentary is based on. But one of the things that, that struck me the other night, and it's interesting to hear people give me feedback who weren't in, intimately involved back then, or maybe they're younger uh, people who really didn't even uh, live there or live that during that time period or were too young to remember it, is the celebration that the Bulls had after beating the Pistons in that mm-hmm. series in 1991 uh people are commenting to me wow like is that like the real footage like there's popping champagne and jerry krause is <laughs> dancing on the plane and then one of the things that was a little confusing i don't know if you all saw it we had to edit uh some of the clips out that we wanted to use the bulls had made up these t-shirts that said three peat on the front mm-hmm. and on the back they said bull sh blank t <laughs> with a with a mad bull and because, you know, back then it was unheard of to three-peat. Uh, nobody had done it, I don't believe, since the Celtics, uh, uh, you know, in the modern day, no one had done it. Uh, obviously, when the Celtics won, whatever, they won nine, ten championships. Um, it was, you know, you're only playing, I think, amongst eight teams. And a bunch of teams had tried to get to a three-peat, you know, Lakers, uh, Celtics uh, in, the, in the 80s, and then the Pistons were trying to do it. So they were talking about getting a three-peat, and they had these shirts made. 
And uh, as I said, we had to cut out the scenes where you really saw the shirt mm. uh, because when we were showing it to people uh, as we were editing it and putting it together and we, we would do little samplings, people would say, wait a minute, where's that footage from? The, the three-peat, you know, that wasn't until 94. So rather than try to explain it in the documentary, we, we edited some of it out. But anyway, I'm getting long-winded here, is that that is something I didn't, I didn't really appreciate before, you know, how much they celebrated and let loose just by beating the Pistons, you know, a lot of times you would say, oh, my God, you all prematurely celebrate. You still got a championship to, to go try and win. And it wasn't that Michael was overlooking Magic and the Lakers, because he even says that, uh, I think, in the current day interview that took place right after the celebration. It was just it was such a long struggle to get past the Pistons. And they had, they had fought so hard and, and the series were so physical in uh, 88, 89 uh, or 80, 89, 90 and 91 that, uh, you know, getting over that hump just meant so much to them, whether they won the championship that year or not. So that, that celebration and, and the visceral reaction that I'm getting from people who, who watched uh, that episode uh, has surprised me. Yeah, Sunday definitely threw a Detroit Pistons basketball Twitter into a tizzy. They were up and, and uh, ready to talk about, uh, you know, the potential three-peat that they almost had. And uh, it's fun seeing other basketball fan bases uh, come up and and, and uh, start this conversation. You know, the conversation that I'm extremely interested in is later on in these episodes, because Michael Jordan, to me, the most confident basketball player that's ever lived. Uh, and he revealed or, or came out with the, the statement prior to the last dance beginning saying that some people might look at me as a terrible teammate after watching these 10 episodes. So I'm really intrigued to see how he will be viewed. And, and the fact that MJ, the most confident basketball player in my perspective, from my perspective, even had some sort of reluctance uh, and, and even, you know, even considered the other side is really fascinating to me so was mj really concerned uh is he concerned and and how will uh he be viewed after all this and what can we expect from from that perspective i think that you know if you go back to uh the beginning of our chat today um when when we were looking at it uh in the in the old school documentary format of you know 80 90 minutes uh yes we were very concerned when you look at the the footage of 97 98 which would have had to dominate a 90-minute documentary he would have come across uh very uh harsh and it would have been difficult to really tell the story for people to understand that it wasn't that he was mean-spirited or a tyrant but you know he was so committed to winning and and he never asked anybody to do anything that he himself wouldn't do to make the sacrifices for that greatness you're going to see that come out more and more as, as the episodes, you know, I don't want to give anything away, but you'll see that come out more and more as the episodes progress. And you'll see a lot of current day interviews with many of the players that he played with some who had significant roles and some who were very lesser, uh, lesser role players uh, who talk about that, who, who get asked that by Jason. And, and you'll be very interested, I think, to hear the, the, the different responses. 
Well, it's been, a, it's been a good couple of weeks so far for Scott Burrell, whether he likes it or not. I mean, they say infamy, <laughs> infamy is better than, uh, <laughs> than being famous. Um, but, but I guess that's, that is as well what people are looking for is to see, you know, most basketball fans are aware of Scottie Pippen and, and Horace Grant because those were integral parts of those teams. So, um, you know, what, without obviously giving it away, what, what sort of stories, lines did you try to focus on that showed some of the lesser known players who had a larger impact on on not only the success but maybe the influence of Michael and, and what he was able to get out of those players. Uh, I mean, you're going you're going to see more uh, more uh, uh, things about Scott Burrell, uh, some some off court, some on court uh, <laughs> things uh, that that I think people will be very interested in. You're going to see uh, a good story uh, coming up in this Sunday's episode around the dream team and Tony Kukoc. And, uh, you know, a lot of people either might not remember or didn't really focus on it, that the Bulls had drafted Tony Kukoc, I believe, in 1990, could have been 1991. But they stashed him, uh, you know, draft and stash, which is a, which is a concept uh, in, in the NBA, uh, let it, left him playing overseas in Europe, where he was from. And uh, now he has... but. But Krause had made a you know big deal about Kukoc and how great he was going to be, and he was going to be the next Magic Johnson. I think is how he described him. And now, uh, two of the Bulls, Michael and Scotty, are on the dream team, and lo and behold, they're going to meet Tony uh, and his team uh, at the Olympics. So that's going to be a very interesting story, uh, uh, and I think that's coming up in. Uh, I think it's in episode five. It's in five or six, but I, yeah, um, yeah, it should be the next episode, episode five. Yeah, well, that, yeah. that's going to be fascinating because, uh, again, if you followed basketball around that time, you know that Michael and Scotty wanted to send a message to Tony at the Olympics and, and largely did so. So, uh, but, it, but again, that sort of is, is interesting for me because it brings Jerry Krause back into it because even though the relationship there between Jerry and the players was frictional. He was clearly good at his job. He was able to recruit the right players and make big deals and big trades. So it's good to see, of course, you know, shining a light on on Jerry's success within building that team, rather than just sort of, uh, you know, a sort of a guy who's a peripheral player uh, for this documentary series. I don't want to spoil anything, so but I'll give you a little teaser. In episode nine, there is a really, really compelling story about uh, one of one of Michael's teammates from the Bulls uh, that I'm not I'm not going to share with you all, but uh, but one 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 that that people will really uh, find uh, very poignant and interesting. So episode nine, that's a that's a story about May. So I'm gonna guess. I have no idea. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it is easy to follow along, and, and as as producers, you all made a good decision um, to you know to. To go sort of month by month as the episodes have gone along, it's been easy to follow. Uh, and uh, even for non-basketball fans, how you know the visual timeline has, has been fantastic. Has there been a story that's been tough to tell uh, in, from your perspective, the one that was sort of difficult to get across to the viewer? Um, I think that we're going to start tackling some, some uh, difficult topics, topics that I think people are, are going to be very interested to see uh, how we handled them, you know, whether it be, um, the 1992, uh, Bulls with the, uh, uh, Sam Smith book that came out, the Jordan mm-hmm. rules, 
and a lot of uh, locker room gossip and, and information uh, that, that either leaked out or got blown out of proportion and Sam wrote a book about it. Uh, uh, Michael going to Atlantic City during the uh, playoff series with the New York Knicks on an off day and you know what that blew into uh, and, 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 a, and a whole microscopic look at uh, did Michael have a gambling problem? Um, and then in episode uh, seven, I believe, uh, the the murder of Michael's father, which is obviously a very a very difficult subject to, to talk with him about and to uh, and to uh, have to go back and, and portray uh, in the documentary. Was there uh, was there anyone who declined to to speak on uh, on this documentary at any point for for whatever reason? Yes, but I would rather not you know, no, that's list fine. Who, they, who they are. Yeah, because yeah. It, it seems again to me, you know, anything attached to Michael, because we, we have him on such a, a high standing in the basketball world, that people would like to attach themselves and like to be involved and like to share their story because, um, you know, everyone's got a different angle or a different thing that happened one day, um, you know, with Michael Jordan. So, um, you know, it, it's, always, it's always interesting to see the guys who went up against him and are now happy to sort of talk about like what he was like as a competitor. I know, I know Gary Payton's one of those ones. Um, and, and that just sort of brings me back here to Isaiah. You know, we see Shaq and Charles Barkley who, you know, they fought a couple of times in the NBA, but they're friends and they, you know, they, they're, they've sort of forgotten what happened in the NBA. But why is it that the Michael and the Isaiah, you know, history has never sort of eased over time now that they're both, you know, retired and no longer playing in the NBA? You know, um, you're going to be surprised. Uh, I'll just leave it at this. You'll be surprised when, when it gets to the Olympics, which obviously is another uh, story about uh, how Isaiah felt about not being selected for the dream team and what might have been the reasons. So I'll leave that for next Sunday night. But I think you're going to be very surprised at uh, what Michael says current day uh, regarding that and, and, and how he feels about Isaiah. Well, that's one uh, certainly that, that we'll be looking forward to. Um, just uh, shifting slightly here before we wrap up here, Curtis, with the uh, obviously the NBA has been suspended right now. We'd normally be in the playoffs. Uh, there's talk that perhaps some gyms will be open for players to go and start getting workouts in. Um, you know, for the Charlotte Hornets, uh, you know, what, what, what is your sort of take on where the, where the season is right now? And do you expect we'll be playing any basketball at all for this season? Or do you think uh, this season is a wrap? You know, I really don't have any insight or opinion on uh, the resumption of play, you know, for this season. Obviously, uh, I think everybody would would love to play under the right circumstances. Um, but, the, you know, this is something that has basically shut the world down and certainly right now has shut the United States down. Um, we're, you know, first and foremost, we're concerned about the health and safety of our players and, and uh, the staff and coaches that have to work with them on a regular basis as well as as, as fans uh, that would attend games and and uh, you know our hearts goes out to everybody who's been affected by this uh, by this terrible virus and have either lost loved ones or suffered greatly um, so that's you know that's what's more important right now than, than basketball you know at some some point at some day uh, hopefully in the not too distant future things will start to get back to uh, uh, the way things were uh, before uh, COVID-19 and uh, we'll, you know, we'll be ready to, to uh, start the, uh, the league up and, and, and resume uh, when everybody feels that that's the right time. But uh, right now, you know, we're just, we're just watching it uh, 
you know, what our government officials and health experts uh, are recommending. And, and uh, we'll see how it goes as states try to uh, reopen their business uh, uh, economies over the next few weeks. Curtis, a couple quick questions uh, before you go. Having been around Michael for so long uh, and been through so many uh, facets of his life here, uh, this latest facet with as uh, you know, owner of the Charlotte Hornets, Charlotte obviously hasn't attained uh, as much basketball prestige, hasn't won a lot in the postseason as I'm sure MJ wants. How tough has that been on Michael, the competitor? Yeah, it's very, very tough. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's been tough ever since, ever since he retired um, and he's gotten involved in management and ownership. You know, it's tough because before he could go out there and, and set an example by his work ethic and, and his ferocity, as we see through the documentary, uh, and practices and whatnot. And, uh, and then obviously, uh, during the games, you know, could, uh, you know, try to, uh, put the team on his shoulders and, and carry them to success. And I think it's, you know, it's very frustrating for him to not be able to impact it that way. And, um, last question for you, Curtis, uh, before the last dance began, I initially thought there would be a sort of a definitive Michael Jordan doc aside from, uh, the last dance but the more and more I, I, I see, you know, everything that we're going through or that we're seeing in, in The Last Dance and everything you're, you're telling us that we're going to see in episodes five through ten, it's almost like we're getting the, the definitive MJ doc. I, I'm sure you're going through this right now and you just you just want to watch this as it progresses. But I just have to ask, on the horizon, do you see another Michael Jordan documentary or, or is this it? That's up. I mean, that's up to Michael. Obviously, he's still got a lot of life left in him, and uh, you know, this documentary really will just cover uh, the '97, '98 season. You know, we don't we don't really expand upon uh, uh, life after that. Um, I think that uh, you know that that was one of the tough parts in, in in doing the longer form documentary and trying to do all the stories. We do go down the rabbit hole and explore some of these things that you might feel are very Michael Jordan centric, but they're important to do because they had such an impact on the Bulls as a team. Uh, you know, again, it, it just as using an example in the episode coming up, you know, when Michael uh, makes the, the trip on a day off to Atlantic City and there's so much criticism and all of a sudden, you know, Krause comments on it, as you'll see, and then his teammates and Phil Jackson have to be supportive. And they have to come back because they're down two to nothing uh, after after the two games that are played in New York. So you have to tell the story for the viewers to understand, wow, this this wasn't just about Michael Jordan. Look at how it impacted the team, the, the, the response that the management of the team made rather than to be supportive. And, and again, one of the things that we didn't talk about today, this is a time before social media. This is a time where, you know, although there was news 24 hours, it wasn't like it, anything like it was like it is today. So these things would have been just debated and debated and debated nonstop back then. Now you're getting to see it a little more, uh, let's use the phrase social distancing, because there's been such a distancing, <laughs> you know, from, from 1992, you're getting to see it. Uh, and you're getting the current day uh, view of it from some of the participants. Uh, not that they're changing the story, but now they're able to reflect on it, you know, 20 or 30 years later. And I, I, I think it's really, really interesting. I, and I hope that the viewers can really 
understand the juxtaposition of the juxtapositioning of that and and say wow you know we it's not like we can go back and read the tweets from back then i mean yeah you can read some of the news reports but it's not like michael jordan you know as, as a lot of current day players are tweeting all day long or they're you know on their <laughs> snapchat or whatever and they're telling their story and they're telling you how they felt about the game they played tonight and whatnot it's it's really interesting to see it being reflected on you know 25 and 30 years later I think we're all uh, feverishly waiting for Michael Jordan's first ever tweet or Instagram post. I think that could, uh, <laughs> that could break the internet. But, uh, Curtis, thank you very much for taking some time. Thanks out for having schedule. me, guys. It was fun. Uh, it means a lot to us. Good luck with the remaining six episodes. I know we all can't wait. And good luck with the Hornets going forward. Uh, whenever we next have basketball, hopefully it's this season, but probably more likely next season, then I uh, hope to see the Hornets in the playoffs and competing for a championship soon. Thanks, guys, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episodes. I'm sure you will. You could stay.